Our scripture reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. You can follow along behind me. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. I think I'm on. Am I on? <laughs> okay. Uh, glad to be with you once again, and I'm really honored to open up the scripture and thankful to open the scripture with you. Um, and this passage in particular is a real, has been a real gift to me this week, and really the last couple of weeks. So um, as we're kind of turning the air in our minds and our hearts, and we've just heard it uh, read, uh, we've been spending the last several weeks, and we'll be spending the next several weeks in the New Testament letter to the Ephesians. And this letter spells out God's vision for his church, what his church is and what it's becoming. And God's vision can be surprising, especially when we compare and contrast it to our own vision for the church. Because you see, despite our best and our worst efforts, our softest and our loudest opinions, the church is meant to look and to sound and even to smell like Jesus. Jesus, who's a miracle that, and did miracles that didn't look like miracles. A miracle in the form of powerless, of the vulnerable, and of the unimportant. And hence our sermon titled, Jesus and his church belonging to an ordinary looking miracle. And our passage once again fits the description that we've been talking about with the book of Ephesians and God's church. Because oftentimes prayer, which we'll talk about this morning, prayer doesn't look or feel very powerful or strong or important when we're doing it. But it's all these things and far, far more, as we'll see. But before we look at Paul's prayer in the book of Ephesians in chapter three, verses 14 through 21, would you pray with me and for our time together in and with God's words to us this morning? Let's pray. Father, um, we do pray uh, that we would taste and see your goodness that your richness would overwhelm us. To be like little children. Um, so excited and, and that we can't take it in. That we have to talk about it. That we have to rejoice in it. And Lord, um, help us to see your love. Help it to be beyond a cliche. Something we talk about in the church and we don't really experience we don't really show, help it to be something very real, the most real thing about life. I pray this, and I pray that your spirit would move in us so we would see you, Jesus, high and lifted up, more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts, we pray. In your name, Jesus, amen. 
Well, about this time, uh, 11 years ago, this time of year, 11 years ago, about January, late Feb, late mid-January, 11 years ago, uh, my wife and I, uh, Tier and I, lived in southern New Mexico. And southern New Mexico, um, we had, at this time, our twins were six-month-olds, six-month-old babies. That's hard to even remember that time. Uh, but Tier, my wife, was taking care of these two six-month-old babies, uh, mostly on her own, because I was out at this time of year, starting a new semester as a college minister at New Mexico State University. And what did you do when you do that? You make your flyers, you have your leadership meetings at all hours of the night, and and we were handing out hot cocoa at tables outside of the student union for days on end. And during the fun and exhausting chaos of this season of sunny southern New Mexico had its coldest winter in something like 100 years. It was freezing. And our copper pipes froze and then exploded in our house. (laughs) This was no ordinary bathroom leak turned flood in the hallway or whatever else. Um, The pipes that exploded were located above. Yes, in the ceiling, (laughs) non-insulated, above our living room and our dining room and our kitchen. (laughs) And so um, when the the water, uh, when these frozen pipes burst, And this newly thawed out water came down. It was like a waterfall coming into all three of those big rooms. Water was gushing through air vents between walls, uh, collapsing our dining room into like giant chunks of drywall coming down from the ceiling. And it was like a disaster zone. (laughs) And so we were like panicking. We were like pulling in and pulling out giant recycling cans and garbage cans trying to collect the water. And we were calling everyone we knew, neighbors, family, state farm. And we grabbed our six-month-old twins and we ran for the hills and we went to this long-term hotel across town. And a few nights later, we kind of met with our community group um, because we were scheduled to do so and we debriefed about it. And we told these friends the sad, scary story of the house flood. And by then, the happier ending that had already started to come about, which was the home insurance that we were using, had agreed to cover all of our costs. And we were really thankful for that. And we were rejoicing. I don't remember the exact figure that we had, but it was far, far, far more money than we could have asked or even thought to ask for. <laughs> anyway, our, ho- our church home group... Um, pause to take in the kind of story about the damage and and also the sheer dollar amount, which was staggering that it was going to do. And then in true New Mexico fashion, they grinned and they suggested a do-it-yourself option. (laughs) It's amazing. They said, hey, Sid, Tier, for a few cases of beer and a couple large pizzas, we'll all grab some sledgehammers, we'll pull up the carpet, We'll pull out the soggy drywall and then maybe even install the new cabinets and pipes and all the other non-electrical stuff and the Druin home will be as good as new. And then you could keep all of that money and it'll take like, you know, one, maybe two weekends tops. Cost, you know, tens of dollars. (laughs) And perhaps this goes without saying, but as generous and well-meaning as that offer was, We did not take our home group up on it. And we went with a team of contractors and it took them months, not a few evenings or even just a few weekends. And it cost tens of thousands of dollars, not maybe or just above, just below $100. Like our friends in the New Mexico home group, 
and our conversation here, I really kind of seriously considered doing the cheaper, easier option, shorter option at least. All of us are kind of constantly doing this. We're constantly doing this with all of our lives. We're underestimating the cleanup cost. And we're not just doing that with home and work projects. We're doing that spiritually all of the time. We call the evil inside of us and the evil outside of us routine difficulty or just a pain or bad luck. Yes, it's a problem, a leak, but oh no, not a flood. You know, it's not certainly a waterfall. (laughs) It's a problem we can solve if we just gather the right energy and the right tools up together. Okay, it may take a bit more than tens of dollars and a few weekends and a sledgehammer, but we've got this. Let's go. And the reality is that's just not the way it works, right? Because when we see the dark edges of addiction and our compulsions and that repeated sin gush out of ourselves and out of our friends and out of our church, out of our spouses, out of our children, we can often do this. We can often turn confidently usually privately, to a firm conversation or more education or just a quick few sessions of counseling. That's all it's going to take. But in the words of the theologian and pastor, Eugene Peterson, evil is something else altogether. It's malignant, immense, impersonal, beyond management, escaping comprehension. It's a mystery. And if we are constantly minimizing evil into something that we can like a fix it yourself wrong, we're also doing the same reduction to God's good love, which is more than a right thing we do. Paul is telling us in our passage, evil is not the greatest mystery. The mysteries of goodness and love overwhelm evil. Or in the way that Paul puts it in verse 19, God's love surpasses knowledge. And the dimensions of this love are limitless. We can't control the love of Christ. We can't even hope to contain the love of Christ. It is a flood. It is a waterfall that overflows our hearts and our minds, let alone any empty garbage cans and recycling bins that we can gather together to catch the flood. And Paul's telling us that the way that we tap into this giant this God's giant love is to the way that we beat back the darkness with a greater light is yes, prayer, prayer. You see, when we look at the evil outside of us and we look at the evil inside of us, we should feel overwhelmed. That's appropriate. Paul's overwhelmed in this passage. He's overwhelmed by his chains. He's overwhelmed by the fears inside of him about what the gospel ministry is going to happen to it with him gone. He's overwhelmed with the bad blood between Jews and Gentiles in the Ephesian church. But then Paul shows us the secret of the universe. We get to pray. We get to pray for the overwhelming good, that flood of God's love in Jesus Christ. And we get to cry out. We can cry out. I can't. You can help. That's all prayer is. I can't. You can help. But how do we learn to pray 
that deeply, more quickly, for such a big God. Paul explains how to do that and how we begin to pray that way, his big prayers by sharing his own prayer for us even. And he sees this in four points. First, verses four through 14 through 17, Paul asks God that we would have the Spirit's power. Second, verses 18 through 19, Paul asks God for us to have clear eyes. Third, verse 19, Paul asks God for us to have full hearts. And third, fourth and finally, in verses 20 through 21, Paul asks God for us to know we can't lose. Spirit's power, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. <laughs> the sermon's outline in your e-bulletin and likely projected behind me. Uh, but let's begin at verses 14 through 17 and Paul's first prayer request for the Ephesians and us, the Spirit's power. Okay, it's easy to skip over verse 14, isn't it? We can read that and we can go, let's get to the good stuff. If you've been in the church for a while, you can think, gosh, that is so Paul. That's just so basic. Uh, that's just basic Christianity. That's basic for Christians. Yet what Paul chooses to do here in verse 14 and what he models for us is familiar, but it's anything but basic. First of all, Paul tells us, I bow my knees. And that wasn't the typical Jewish prayer posture in the first century. As in the parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector, most Jewish people stood up and prayed to God. And most commentators agree, therefore, that what Paul's doing here is something very uh, intense emotionally and also symbolic. He's, by bowing his knees, Paul is showing this sort of intensity of feeling, a love that hurts for the Ephesians but also a humble devotion to God the Father. But second, Paul also chooses to pray before he tells them what to do. Paul's choosing to pray before he tells them what to do. At the end of chapter three, and really throughout the first three chapters of Ephesians, notice Paul is praying. He's praying for the Ephesians before he comes alongside them and tells them how to live. And we see that especially in chapters four through six. That is so against the grain of how I operate. <laughs> it's so against, I'm just so quick to fix. I'm so quick to fix and so slow to pray. And my guess is I'm not alone in human history, let alone in 21st century America. And for instance, if you paid attention to the sermon outline, you might have noticed that I intentionally borrowed, borrowed, not stole, points two through four, okay, that from the TV show Friday Night Lights. You might be familiar with that. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose is what Coach Taylor would tell, uh, what his, he would chant and, and say regularly to the Dillon Panthers, his football team. And it meant something like stay focused on your specific goal, clear eyes, be brave, full hearts, and you'll win every single time, no matter what the scoreboard says, can't lose, right? And later I'm gonna apply how each of these slogans teaches us how to pray in our passage, but don't miss the greater point here first. Too often the way you and I live the Christian life skips over our first point on the outline, right? We, we forget to pray for the Spirit's power. 
We can leave a worship service like this or a Bible story or just a Christian hangout with good friends. And we can feel like those high school football players leaving the locker room, can't we? When it feels good, we're chanting clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Focusing on the fundamentals and how to execute the fundamentals in order to win the game, no matter what the scoreboard says. And so change in the Christian life is reduced. It's reduced to merely fixing behaviors. We look for, or we become these good cops and bad cops, right? Good cops who use rewards and bad cops who use punishment just to get results as quickly as possible. So we try to stamp out temptations by atomic habits or Christian accountability only. Or the Christian life gets reduced to merely thinking differently, right? We look for or try to become better teachers. Better teachers who use information to change the ways that we think. And so we, if we change the ways that we think, we can change the ways that we act or speak. And so we only try to read or think our way to less painful emotions or choices. But this greatly underestimates the evil inside of us and outside of us, doesn't it? As Paul prays, we need to be strengthened with God's power through his spirit in our inner beings. The selfishness of sin goes deeper than our thoughts and behaviors to our very inner beings. Sin is bigger than what we can control. Sin is bigger than the expert's latest data set. Sin is bigger than the greatest experts know how. And yet, and yet, do-it-yourself Christianity also greatly underestimates the goodness and love of God. Perhaps we all underestimate the size of God's love, even more underestimating the size of God's love than we underestimate the size of the evil around us and inside of us. But one remedy that Paul shows us is prayer. Prayer is a relationship that decreases us and our abilities, at least in our own estimation, yes, right? But prayer also increases our awareness of evil and God's good love. And praying with this kind of God-aware relationship and mind and in heart, that leads to our and other people's transformation. That's how we change. But notice what Paul prays for because he's telling us how people actually change, right? That he, God, may grant you to be strengthened with prayer through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to, verses 16 through 18. Paul is praying that the spirit of Jesus Christ would come and it would, he would dwell in our hearts if we don't know him. But he's also praying if we do know Jesus through faith, Paul's praying that the roots and foundations of Jesus's love would strengthen us, would strengthen us to start doing blank. You can fill in the blank. To start doing the things like hosting people, wondering how those people feel right now around us, praying 
for this in our life and to maybe stop doing blank, right? Drinking too much, talking ugly about others, snubbing people, lusting after that. And that's like, by the way, just a huge spiritual grid shifting idea. It's giant to think of the Christian life this way. And I can't possibly do justice to it. I can't explain it well enough this morning with the time we have. But here are two quick thoughts to sort of cement this idea. First, people change from the inside out. People change from the inside out. Out of the overflow of our hearts, we not only speak, we act and we think and we feel. Here's how the pastor and theologian Brian Chapel puts it. What we love to do most, we will do. And since we only and always do what we love the most, the, then greater love, Jesus's love, is the means to greater power. Only an overwhelming affection for God will produce an overwhelming power to defeat sin. Love is power. Or to quote another pastor and writer, prayer brings together love and power. This is why when we see a problem inside of us or outside of us, it's actually so good to pray about it first. Just start with something simple. When life feels like too much, which it oftentimes feels like too much, start with something simple. Just say, I can't, you can, help. Try it. Or try what's called the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God knows. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows what I'm dealing with. He knows the person. He knows the place. He knows the thing. He knows the event. He knows the timing. Second, quick, cementer. People change because of Jesus' love for us. People change because of Jesus' love for us. So people change from their hearts, and people change because of Jesus' love in our hearts for us. Roughly 2,000 years ago, God was born a baby. We call that Christmas, right? And then he died a sacrificial death for us three years later. We call that Good Friday. And he was resurrected with the power through the spirit, by the way, that dwells inside of us, same power, that's called Easter. And this gospel message is the good news because it means that even when others demote you, God claims you. He says, he's mine. He's my son. She's mine. She's my daughter. And God claims you as his very own, even though we don't, and we know this, we don't remotely deserve that. I love the way that Rebecca McLaughlin tries to explain this using our culture's best love stories and how they ultimately show us something but then fall short of Jesus' love. Right? Jesus' love is a bit like when Lily Potter threw herself in front of Harry to save his life from Lord Voldemort. But God isn't evil like Lord Voldemort, right? And really, we're not like innocent babies or sort of innocent babies. Jesus' love is a bit like when Anna throws herself between Elsa, her sister, and her evil boyfriend, Hans, 
right? And, and frozen. And the power of Anna's love means that she gets to come back to life. But we're less like Anna or even Elsa and more like Hans. <laughs> Finally, Jesus' love is a bit like Titanic the movie when Jack decides to give his love for Rose and he freezes to death in the water because he loves her so much. But although, yeah, again, Christians are loved that much and even more so by God, just like Jack loved Rose, when Jesus died for us, it wasn't a love story that was mutual. <laughs> it was, we were mean to God, like Rose's fiance in the Titanic. And this, Jesus' love, his unrivaled love for you and for me, is that soil that if we root ourselves in it, we will continue to grow and grow and grow and grow into maturity. And Jesus' unrivaled love is that foundation that if we build our lives on top of it, we will continue to expand and renovate. Renovate and expand. Expand and renovate in worship and in compassion and in acts of service. But you might be asking, Sid, how? How do we root ourselves in Jesus' love? How do we build our lives on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? Well, this is exactly what Paul is praying for us in verses 18 through 19. That is to root and establish ourselves in Jesus' love, we need to God to give us first clear eyes. Our second point. And then there are those here going, doing the math and going, well, he's only on the second point of four. Hmm. <laughs> and maybe you're trying to suddenly look at your wristwatch or turn behind you look at the clock. And you're going, it seems like he's been talking for a while by now. Let me speak to you. <laughs> Don't worry. We'll end today's sermon with our second point. And we'll pick up the sermon next week in points three and four. Okay, so prepare yourselves for a cliffhanger. I'm sorry. <laughs> same verses, same prayer. Part two, next week. <laughs> Edge of your seats. <laughs> but back to Paul's second prayer request, his second prayer ask, okay? First, he asked God for spirit strength in our inner beings. Now he's asking for our eyes to be clear. Or in Paul's words, that we may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know that the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So essentially, Paul is asking that each of us, together with all the saints, that every single one of us would be able to see, or just even just to take in, the impossibly huge love of Jesus Christ. I love the way that Paul underlines how impossible this is in the original Greek of verse 18. He uses this unusual word there for the verb under, to understand. The word translated comprehend more literally means kind of wrapping your mind around something, okay? We might say that the word means to grasp something. You know, the images of a mind closing around an idea like a, like a hand closes around an object. 
But notice that how Paul describes the four, not three dimensions, engineers, four dimensions of God's love, okay? The width, the height, the depth of Jesus's good love. They surpass the knowledge itself. They surpass knowledge itself. That is, it's like heaven compared to earth. The reach of Christ's love will always exceed our grasp. Do you get that? The reach of Christ's love will always exceed our grasp. It's impossible to comprehend on our own power. Or listen to the way that the popular Christian author Max Lucado puts it. Our capacity to experience God's love will be exhausted long before God's capacity to give it is strained. I love that. Our capacity to experience God's love will be exhausted long before God's capacity to give it will even be strained. As I said earlier, we can't control the love of Christ. We can't even hope to contain the love of Christ. We can't play good enough prevent defense even. It's a flood, it's a waterfall that overflows our hearts and our minds and we can't gather enough recycling and garbage cans together to catch the love of Christ and its flood. Eugene Peterson, who I quoted at the very beginning of our sermon, Eugene Peterson tells a story that kind of, I think, does a good job of pointing towards the love of Christ and how big it is. It's a story about a couple named Fred and Cheryl, and they fly down to Haiti to adopt a five-year-old child named Addie. When Fred and Cheryl and Addie arrived back in the United States, then to their home in Arizona, where Fred and Cheryl live, they decide that they're going to introduce Addie, their new adopted child, to their already teenage children, the two boys who are teenagers, who are towering and still growing, and they're going to introduce these giants to this tiny malnourished little Addie. And she's going to do it, and Cheryl decides to do it over a home-cooked dinner, and so she kind of sets out some platters of, of sizzling pork chops and bowls of mashed potatoes, and they have this sort of like round table dinner together. And really, Addie has never seen so much food in one place at one time in her entire life. And so she watches, eyes wide, as the two teenage sons wolf down their first serving, then the second serving, and they keep refilling their plates with sizzling, more and more sizzling pork chops and piles of mashed potatoes, until suddenly all the food on that table disappeared from the center of the table. And Addie watched her new teenage brothers with huge eyes, and she becomes very, very quiet. And she had this very strange look on her face. Something was wrong, and it was getting worse and worse and worse. Friend Cheryl both noticed Addie's growing alarm, and Cheryl rightly guessed it was about the disappearing food. You see, Addie had grown up hungry, and when the food was gone from the table, it was gone for a long time, <laughs> days at a time, but she wouldn't get another meal or more to eat. And so Cheryl did something really surprising. She took Addie by her tiny, thin hand, and Cheryl led Addie into the kitchen. And she began to show Addie for three extra loaves of bread in the bread pantry. And then she led Addie to the refrigerator door, and she opened it, and she showed Addie all the items, the jugs of orange juice and milk, the bags upon bags of vegetables and fruits. And then she showed her the packages of deli meat and bacon and eggs. 
And then Cheryl walked Addie over to the pantry in the freezer and showed Addie all the piles of meat and snacks and canned beans and sauces. The whole time Cheryl's pointing out these different items of food to Addie, uh, what for Addie felt impossible to comprehend, Cheryl all the while softly reassuring her in her ear, no matter how much your teenage brothers eat, no matter how fast they eat it, there is going to be much more food. There's more where dinner came from. You, Addie, will never go hungry again. And in his prayer, Paul is doing the exact same thing for us about God. We're like Addie, we're tiny. We're malnourished from the social snubs and the relations heartache and the pain outside of us is compounded by the pain that we hold inside and we transmit to others. We live like orphans, tough and throwing elbows to get the scraps that we can get. Or we're needy and weak and we're sucking other people and opportunities dry of the drops of affection. And what is there to do for us? What is there to do to us in our condition? Does Paul think it's enough just to tell us, hey, God's love is enough. And we never have to go hungry again. No, Paul is praying. And he's praying that the Holy Spirit would take us by our tiny, thin hand. And he would show us the 4D dimensions, breadth by breadth, length by length, height by height, depth by depth of the love of Christ. All the while softly reassuring us that we never, ever have to go hungry again. Perhaps the best way to end our first look at Paul's prayer and the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love, perhaps it's best just to end with a quote. It's a quote from Bishop Handley Mool. He says this, who has not read and reread the closing verses of the third chapter of Ephesians with the feeling of one permitted to look through the parted curtains into the holiest place of the Christian life. Yes, evil is immense. It's impersonal, it's beyond management, it's escaping comprehension. Evil is a mystery. But evil is not the greatest mystery. The mysteries of the goodness and the love of Christ overwhelm evil. And when prayer parts the curtains to give us that glimpse of God, it is the holiest place of the Christian life. Would you pray with me again? Father, thank you for these words to us. Thank you for this encouragement to just scuba dive your love, to realize it is beyond and above and below and all around and that it's, it's, we can scarcely take it in. But Lord, would you open our mouths wide? Would you help us to come to you with our hunger and our thirst? And would you feed us 
even by this passage this morning? And would you whet our appetite for more? We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.